Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Spence said earlier, welcome to our church if you're visiting today for the first time. Glad to uh, have you, especially, or if you're newish, kind of over the summer and stuff, and uh, just coming back, welcome, uh, welcome back to you. Uh, we are going to dive into Acts today again. We are in a sermon series. We have been since January, is it? Was it? No, it was pre- before that, wasn't it? Uh, November, I think, October last, last fall. So um, kind of a 13-month or so. We'll finish up uh, before Christmas this year, but a lot more to get to. So we're, we're not actually this year going to do a vision and value sermon, which we Sometimes like to do this time of year because a lot of you might be checking out our church for the first time. Common time to check out churches and to, uh, to find out if that's a place you want to kind of call home and so forth. And so we sometimes do that. Uh, don't have the time in the preaching calendar this, this year to do that. But I did want to invite you again if you walked in late to our new to Hiawatha lunch after second service today. If you want to come back for that at 1245, we'd love to have you there. No need to RSVP. It's a very quick 45 minute, if, if that, uh, lunch where we uh, just give you a quick spiel about our church and get to meet some staff. So we'd love to do that. Or, which we, I don't think we announced the intro class that we spent. So if you'd like to come to something more uh, kind of elaborate and longer, uh, we have a six, kind of five and a half, six hour class on September 28th. It's a Saturday from 9 to 2.30 where we feed you a breakfast and lunch. It's, it's all free. Uh, but uh, kind of, it goes over a lot more about who we are as a church and what we believe in and, and what, where we've come from, our history, where we're headed, uh, and a whole slew of other things about our philosophy of ministry and, and so forth. So if you'd like to come to that, uh, we'd love to have you there too. It's, again, it's free. You can sign up on the app that Spencer announced before. It's, a, it's an event on there, pretty easy to find, or on your blue cards, or emailing us, or just coming. Uh, we'll make room. So uh, September 28th, 9 a.m. That will give you a, a great picture uh, of, of who we are as a church and what really kind of makes us tick and keeps us up at night in a, in a good way. So um, love to have you there too. Now, with that said, though, uh, I did want to say one thing about our church that you should know if, if you don't already. Uh, if you're new or just haven't heard this yet, uh, is that we have a strong core value of the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all things. And so we really love Jesus Christ here, but more than that, we believe in his love for us. We trust in it and we believe it. We proclaim it. We sing about it. We eat it in communion. It's objective to us. And so uh, we, that's a huge part of who we are, our beliefs, but also kind of just our, our lives as Christians in community together. And so kind of with that, our main mission is not to change the world. It's not our vision to change the world. It's too big. We're just one local church here. Uh, we're not primarily about causes here, but we're about pronouncing, singing about, and remembering the one who has already changed the world and who presently reigns over the whole earth as its true and rightful king. And then in him, we live and move and have our being. And then then we seek to spread his influence further into a dead and dying world and into our beautiful and broken city through love and good deeds. All right, so that's kind of who we are in a nutshell. A lot more to say about Hiawatha. uh, But I'm starting that way today, one, because some of you are brand new. You've never heard that before uh, here. Uh, Or maybe maybe you have, but there you go. There it is again. Uh, but, But second, this relates a lot to today's passage in Acts 20. 1 to 16, so it's kind of an opportune time to see it play out in the Bible. We're not making this stuff up. We're not trying to be new or sexy or just kind of different when it comes to church visions. We want to be old and biblical and God-centered. We want the Bible to inform what we should be all about as a church and not just kind of make that up to kind of uh, ebb and flow with culture and uh, so forth. Uh, so, um, so today we're going to read from Acts 21 to 16. Uh, Acts is a book in the New Testament, if you're brand new to the Bible or the book of Acts, about Jesus, like they all are. 
Uh, but it's about the church. It's about uh, the, the story of what happened in history after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people, the first Christians who were gathered in there in that upper room and, and believed and the, in the gospel, and they were already with Jesus, but these new believers that were hearing the message of the apostles and so forth, they were filled with the Spirit, and through them, uh, the gospel spread like brush fire around the Roman Empire. So we're still reading about that uh, through kind of the lens of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Tons to recap, I don't have time for today, but if, if you'd like to go back and listen to sermons, we have them all on our website and a SoundCloud account and a podcast if you want to go back and kind of catch up. But we are in Acts 21 to 16 today. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul and Eutychus, who's this kid who falls out a window and dies. And Paul raises him from the dead, basically, in a nutshell. Uh, but there's, there's some more, too, around that, uh, kind of bookending it, that uh, I'll comment on here, too, in just a minute. So let's read it in full, though, to begin. Verse 1, uh, 3.16, Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Purus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on, the bo- on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. All right, so let's start off by talking here today about the bookends of this passage. So there are three slides there, three paragraphs. I want to talk about the first and third paragraph, which basically deals with this kind of mundane travel of Paul, kind of where he's headed around the area on, on and sort of towards the end of his third missionary journey. So the first thing to note here, and in passages like this, you can do this elsewhere too in biblical narrative, like in Acts, but also like in the Old Testament as well. But the first thing to note here is just this long list, and I listed out most of them here. This is mostly from the first paragraph, actually, not the third. So there's more than just this, but it's just a sampling. Is the long list of diverse names and cities that are mentioned in Luke's account. So Luke, remember, is the author of Acts and a traveling companion to Paul 
So he's a firsthand eyewitness of these things. Like in the third paragraph where it said, we set sail and we went to, to Philippi or left from Philippi. He's talking about himself being with Paul the Apostle. So firsthand eyewitness to, uh, to all of these things. And he wrote them down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So relatedly then, we should ask, when we see things like this, they're actual cities. It's a part of the world that still exists today. These are real people with real names that are, that are kind of grounded in uh, geographical locations and so forth, many of whom were alive when this book was written and, and, and everything like that. We should ask, what does this read like? When you read a passage like Acts 21 to 16, what does this read like? In other words, what type of literature does this sound like? What genre? Does it read like mythology? Not at all, right? This reads like history, chock full of real people who, again, were still alive when this was written, real cities. You know, this doesn't happen in Atlantis, for example. You know, this is real cities around a real Roman Empire that was ruling for a very long time, 2,000 years ago and in surrounding centuries, and Greco-Roman cities and so forth. So real cities, real travels, real time periods. And so to take things like this and embed things like non-mundane, miraculous prison escapes, as we read about earlier in Acts, or appearances of Jesus Christ himself, as we read about earlier in Acts, or physical healings and resurrections like we read about today in Acts 20, to embed them right into otherwise straightforward historical narrative is super important interpretationally and just theologically for us because there are no gaps or breaks or changes in feel between the two things, between the miraculous and the non-miraculous, as if those miraculous things were just added later by someone else trying to make these things up. And so, in other words, the, the statements here, the juxtapositions are really important. So the statements, Paul left Philippi and just went on a boat trip, and Eutychus was raised from the dead, are right next to each other in the Bible. Right next to each other. Because they're both true, and they're both history. Or to put another way, meaning-wise, resurrections should matter to people who live. Resurrections should matter to people who have names. Resurrections should matter to people who live on this earth and travel places and live places. People like us. Because that's exactly what's happening here in Acts. Acts is an earthly account of the gospel, including heavenly miraculous things, of course, because it's the account of God coming here to save us. But it's an earthly account of the gospel, things that happen on earth in real time, on our planet. It's an account of how victory over death, so kind of pulling uh, from some language here in Acts 20, referring to, to Eutychus' resurrection, but it's, it's, it's an account of how victory over death itself comes to undeserving humans with normal names, normal jobs, living in normal cities with normal lives. People like us. That's what Acts is about. That's what Christianity is about. It's not mythology. It's theological history about a Jesus who really, really loves us. Those of us who are under the sentence of death due to sin, uh, but loved deeply by, by an amazing Savior. So a couple of comments there on the bookends of this passage. Uh, it's easy to read over that stuff, but there's a lot of theology still kind of indwelt in it, and we can take these things for granted. These people were just like us in their humanity, just like us in their sin, 
and God brought victory over death. He brought an interruption of the pattern of death into a context, just like Minneapolis. And people watched it, they saw it, and they put their trust in a Jesus who made it possible. That's Christianity. All right? Lots more to say, but let's move on to the fun part. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, but the fun part, uh, the, middle, the middle paragraph, the second paragraph, which has to do with the Apostle Paul raising this kid, Eutychus, from the dead. All right, so a couple of general observations first, then we'll go back and look at the actual way he healed him, the circumstances surrounding it, the way that Luke chose to, wrote it, uh, to write it, and we'll get theology, drive theology from, uh, from that in a second. But a couple of general things. First, contrary to uh, common belief, it depends who you talk to, uh, but Eutychus is not bored here by Paul's teachings. It is interesting he falls asleep to the Apostle Paul's sermons. The guy who wrote Romans, he probably had Romans on the mind because it's, uh, it's commonly believed he just wrote Romans during those three months where he wintered in Greece. We read about that in verse 2. But anyway, uh, it's kind of funny. But anyway, Eutychus is not bored here. He's just tired. In fact, that he was there at all in a window was probably indicative of how interested he initially was, at least before he died, uh, with what Paul had to say. But it was midnight. Again, he just fell asleep out the window and down three stories to, to his death. So that might seem kind of inconsequential, but making the story all about a kid's boredom sometimes changes how we view it, right? So a lot of times this, this whole thing just becomes uh, a lame, cautionary tale about falling asleep in church. And that's not what it's about. It's about something much more exciting, much more rich, much more spiritual, and central to the gospel than, than that kind of idea. All right, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But that's just a first observation. Uh, the second is the primacy of theological teaching in this passage. So this is true in all of Acts, of course, but we see it kind of come out again here. The primacy of proclaiming the fact that Jesus is alive, that before that he died for sinners like us, he shed his blood for us, that we were purchased back from sin, being enslaved to sin by his blood, the teaching, the heralding of that, and how God was setting up his kingdom over all the earth in light of it through the church's message and through their love for people. All right, so the, the primacy of Paul's teaching. So the one thing you notice here that maybe you saw this when, when I read it, you've seen this before, but one thing you notice is the relative nonchalantness of Paul when he heals Eutychus, like it's an afterthought. And even more importantly then, how he just goes right back to teaching. You know, there's no mention of others in the upper room saying up there, looking out the window maybe, watching the healing, or down there on the street as they gathered around the, the, dead, boy, the dead boy's body. There's no mention of people saying, dang, Paul, really? Could you heal me of my skin rash, please, before you go back up there? Or my chronic headaches? Or could you come back to my house really quick and heal my son's persistent fever? Please, none of, and, and then Paul doing that, none of that. He just goes right back up and, and teaches. The healing is sandwiched by the bread of teaching. Paul just goes right back up to the upper room and says, oh, where was I again? Oh, right, about Jesus. Let's get back to it and his kingdom and the fact that he died for you and people are all ears again. And so he teaches for hours longer before he departs. And so if you push yourself there, and maybe some of you are brand new to Christianity today and you're kind of being confronted with this afresh, and that's great if you are, but put yourself kind of in, in the mix or in the story. What would this tell you about Christianity if you were being exposed to it for the first time? 
What if you were there and you saw this happen? Hours of teaching, boy falls down, dies, uh, an afterthought of a healing, and then right back upstairs, cracked open Bibles, more hours of teaching. What would that tell you? I think a couple of things. One, Christianity is a beautiful mix between physical acts of love and power and spiritual acts of proclamation and teaching. So one, it's about a mix, as we see here. But two, it's about a gospel, the fact that gospel teaching is primary. Teaching with words is primary. It takes precedence over the the physical acts, in this case, even of a resurrection, right? I mean, where's all the people here who are saying, whoa, this healing's way better. I wanted that. Give me more of that. Are you kidding me, Paul? Like you held this away from us? Where's that? Gloriously absent. And so, actually, just in the way the passage is written, it suggests to us, literarily, that there is something greater than the healing. But here's the twist. The healing itself reveals the greater thing and what the essence of Paul's teaching would have been about in that upper room. All right, so for that, we move on from our general observations to uh, the, the essence here of what's going on theologically and as it pertains to Christ and, and his gospel. And I'm calling this, uh, basically, as we look at Paul and Eutychus, but we'll start with Paul here. Paul is replaying some of Jesus' miracles and embodying the gospel in the process. All right, so we talk about this stuff a lot here. A lot of you have heard this, but a lot of you haven't. So I'm just going to say it again, kind of recap. This is the rationale for why we do this biblically and theologically, how we read these passages as though they were symbols of Christ himself. And so understand, the way that Luke, the author, and ultimately God, write narrative in the Bible is to employ different kinds of literary devices and symbolism to underscore one great meta-narrative or to help tell a larger story, one larger story. And so think foreshadowing, repetition, anticipation, moving to climax, and then after climax comes post-shadowing. I don't know if that's a phrase or not. Maybe I just coined it, but if it is, post-shadowing. All right, so in the Bible's case, it looks like Jesus Christ crucified and raised as the climax, everything else before and after it falling subservient to that main story. Not in a we're different and altogether other than the main story, but a we serve the purpose of the main story by foreshadowing or re-imaging it in lesser but intentional ways. Kind of like the moon, the lesser light in the sky reflects the light of the sun, the greater light. And so to say it even more simply here, like with Acts 20 in mind, Paul is a picture of Jesus rather than simply a human physical paradigm for Christian ministry. It's about him, not us. And in three ways we see this today. There are more, but three big ways we see this whole thing playing out. So we'll spend the rest of our time doing that. The first way is in Paul's ministry toward youth or children. So the first thing we see is the relationship between Paul taking this youth in his arms and healing him. And earlier in the story, Jesus taking a child in his arms, from Mark 10, 16, and blessing him. 
it is a clear, unavoidable callback, post-shadowing, an extension of Jesus' earlier ministry. All right, so the big question then becomes, what was Jesus doing there that Paul is reminding us of here? And to get the answer to that, we have to look back at the sort, sort of the wider context, just a couple more verses, there's more to this, but the wider context in Mark 10, which, which is when the disciples were saying to Jesus, don't let children come to you, they're dirty, and they're unworthy of being near you. And so trying to keep these kids away from him, in response to that, Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them. All right, so a couple quick things here. The key phrase is to such. To such belong the kingdom. To such people belong the kingdom of God. And so what that means is Jesus is not saying here that it's actually about age but it's about posture. So we should ask, what is a child like? Children are dependent, they're weak, they're not that smart, but in many cases, their pride does not keep them from being loved. That's that's what's true about children. It's a beautiful thing. Their pride does not keep them from being loved or from asking for help. And that's what Jesus has in mind here, and that's what Paul's actions in Acts 20 remind us of, that Two such kinds of people belong the kingdom of God, child or adult. Two such kinds of people belong the kingdom, to the child, to the weak, to the humble, to the undeserving, to show us that it's by grace we're saved and God's love rather than the works of our hands. Jesus actually rejoiced at this. This is from Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, the same guy I wrote Acts. In Luke 10, 21, Jesus says, he writes this about Jesus, he says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one of the only times you see Jesus rejoice. Not that he's not a happy Savior. It's just this word rejoice is only given over to him. Just a couple of times in, in the gospel accounts, this is one of them. He rejoiced and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is happy here. He's rejoicing as the Son of God towards God the Father, saying you have hidden these truths from very smart people and you have revealed them to very simple-minded people, childlike people. He's rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus loves the idea of grace. If it wasn't this way, it would not be about grace, but about how intelligent you are. He loves how his father's love is being shown rather than the idea of people earning it and climbing the ladder to get it. That's why this is so exciting for Jesus, and it should be for us as well. Do we rejoice at this, at this thought? This is a humble thought. If you're saved, it's because you've just been revealed something to. You haven't earned it. And so Jesus rejoices because he rejoices at grace, just like we do. All right, so there's a reason why there's no passage in the New Testament where Jesus is bouncing an academic elite on his knee and saying to his disciples, to such belong the kingdom, right? He bounces a kid on his knee and says to very, very smart people who condescend the kids, 
Like, you're not getting in. But this child is because he's asking me for help. Can you ask me for help? Do you have a mustard seed of faith? Do you believe in me and me alone and not the works of your hands and all the good you've done? Do you strip those things of glory for the sake of glorifying what I do for you in bleeding on a cross, which he's about to do at this point in the gospel narrative? Acts 20, because a child is saved, is a picture of grace, undeserved grace. All right, let's kind of keep going. We'll, we'll keep moving towards an even greater climax here. I'm starting small and general and getting more specific and bigger. The second way we see Paul image Jesus here is his ministry toward the asleep and the dead. Applies, uh, both apply to Eutychus here. So the second thing is, in Paul's ministry, is, is we see this kind of imagery happening. In Mark 5, which I have here on screen, or part of it, in Mark 5, in a similar story to this one, we see Jesus heal a dead girl, another child, by the way, and it says, he went into the, the, the house full of mourning, sad people who just lost this girl who's dead, and he says to her, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep, referring to the temporal nature of her death, not the fact that she isn't dead. She's actually dead. All right, which sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? To Paul in today's passage where he says, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. In both stories, after brief physical contact, the child comes back to life. All right, so same question as before. Why is this a thing in the Bible? Why is this important? Why the connection? Building off what we talked about before with the grace to the childlike theme in the Bible, we now see grace come not just to the weak and humble, but to the sleeping and the dead. And so in other words, the passivity dial just got turned up to 11. The passivity dial, when it comes to us, just got cranked. Stories like this are here to remind us of, this, on one hand, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus and the mission of Christ, but on the other hand, we also see this continued pronounced theme of grace coming to, literally, non-moving or non-working people. The asleep, and more than that, the dead. So it's a picture, then, of our state when we're saved. Uh, Ephesians 2 gets at this same language, really. Paul wrote this, uh, maybe with Eutychus on the mind, who knows. But he wrote this uh, to the Ephesian church, and he said, in the first part of chapter 2, he talks about how we're dead in sin. He's speaking to Christians here, so it's past tense for them, because now they're not dead anymore, they're alive in Christ. But you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, but then, a little bit later, in verse 4, but God made us alive, like like Eutychus here, was dead, but then Paul made him alive. Same thing. But this is what this points to, is, is right here. This is our story. This is the Christian narrative. Then further down in that paragraph, Ephesians 2.8 says, for, this is why it's so important to understand this, because dead people aren't earning something before the resurrector. See, the, the first part's true, and what Paul extrapolates theologically from that is the bottom part. For, because the top sentence is true, it must be by grace you're saved, not by works. You've been saved by grace of God through your trust or your faith in that grace. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God. Verse 9 actually is where it clearly says, it's not by works, not by what you do, but completely given. Another way that, that Acts shows this same idea is by way of his name. Eutychus means lucky in Greek. Isn't that great? Eutychus means lucky one. He's a lucky kid. Uh, so when you look at this, uh, and this is not a coincidence, um, it's, it's, ba- it's basically saying it's better, when it comes to salvation, it's better to understand our salvation as fortunate, fortunate rather than expected or earned or deserved. Or like Jesus says, it's like the wind blowing in John 3 rather than, these are my words, a ticking clock. It's, it's random. It's unfair. It's unexpected. You don't know when it's going to blow a certain way. And when we receive it, it's, it just comes to us. It's by grace and we're fortunate rather than, oh, I saw that coming. Very rarely will a Christian say about their story but before or after they're saved, they'll look back and say, oh, I totally saw that coming. It makes perfect sense. Like it's usually the total opposite. It's better to understand our salvation as fortunate than expected. So in other words, no one says to an athlete who trains really hard and who should win the race, oh, you're so lucky that you won. Right? No one says to an athlete who trains really, really, really hard and who is seated number one and who should win the race of whatever kind, after they win, you're so lucky. No one says that because the, the fact that they won, well, they should have. It's expected, and they worked really hard for it. But Eutychus is named lucky one here, not expected one, not strong one, not obvious one, not hardworking one, but lucky one to get at what it means to be saved. When it comes to salvation, luck is the right word to use. Even though as Christians we don't really believe in luck, we believe in God's sovereignty, it's still the right word to use. Fortunate lucky or just blessed receiver not earner so luck then as it pertains to god just choosing to come rescue us when we didn't deserve it eutychus was lucky because paul just showed him kindness so the kindness of paul is in focus not the accolades of eutychus in the same way the kindness of god is in focus with our salvation the fortunate nature of our new life in him not, uh, not the expected, expectedness of our hard work and our number one seed in the race. I mean, how lucky was Eutychus? How lucky and fortunate was he? We should read stuff like this and think immediately, how lucky am I that God just chose to save me after I fell asleep in my sins? How lucky and fortunate am I? And here's the reality. None of you in the room or myself believe that enough. None of us believe it enough. I'm not saying we don't believe it. I'm just saying we all are are programmed to not believe that. Programmed to believe that hard work equals blessing. Hard work equals we get something, a paycheck. But when when the Bible talks about salvation, it doesn't talk about in wages terms. In fact, when wages is talked about, it's about what you earn when you sin is death. So the wages of sin 
is death. What we earn, what we're ultimately earning when we just live and think and make mistakes and focus on ourselves and worship ourselves and hurt people and, and all that stuff. What we earn is death. There's no verse that says we earn salvation with wage, with, with that the wages is salvation. What the wages is really is, is death. And so with the gospel, with Christian salvation, the kindness of God is in play. One, so that we won't try to earn salvation, but two, that we'll see the love of God. See, it's not just about the transaction or what it means to be saved. It's about seeing the love of God because if we earned the race, if we earned the medal, it's not about the love of God anymore. It's not about him just showing undeserved kindness. Right? It's about us. And if we think it's about us, will we ever thank God? It is a direct correlation between how much you believe you, co- you, you control your destiny, you, you, you save yourself, and how much you'll be a thankful person, right? Because you don't thank yourself for things. So the more we understand we've done nothing to save ourselves, the more we'll just thank God. Think about Eutychus waking up from death. Would, would he have said, man, I'm amazing. Right? How stupid would that be? All right. Last here is ministry toward the cursed. This, is, this one's a little bit different, and it has to do here, and I'll, I'll read this paragraph. It has to do with how Paul images the incarnation. What we mean by that is how Jesus, the Son of God, became human. So it's a Christmassy term, but how he became human. So it has to do with the incarnation, how Jesus went down, these are words from Acts 20, applying to Christ, went down from the upper room of heaven, condescending himself, becoming human, while not losing a bit of his divine nature, he stooped down to save us ultimately by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Many ways to word that, but that's, that's the gospel with some Acts 20 language sprinkled in. This is why in Acts 20, it's not inconsequential or random that there is mention of a third story at all and why height and lowering and descending are prominent themes in this passage. Because that's what Jesus did. It actually doesn't matter that much that Paul does. It matters more that Jesus did. If it's only Paul in the story, it's just the way that Luke chose to record the narrative. It's like history and that's it. But if this pertains to Christ, if, if, that is, if this is a moon and the light of the sun, the better story, is reflecting off of it, then it, has, then it, then it means everything. Then it matters. Then all of a sudden, we look at it not as just history, but theological history. So then, this last piece, this is why this is so important, this last piece tells us the how behind the what. All right, the the what's been more in the previous two sections. I've kind of been talking about the how already, but this is going to be especially so. This last part tells us the how behind the what. The what being saved by grace, not by works. The what being Jesus saving us from our sins undeservedly. There's still a, well, how did he do that? How did Jesus do that in the world? I understand the what, but... But how did he do it? The how is through Jesus' death. The how is by him going down, coming down from heaven and becoming human like us in order to die as one of us, 
in our place. The Son of God couldn't do that if he didn't incarnate into human flesh. Christmas had to happen so Easter could happen. Easter being the better thing, but Christmas had to happen first. I mean, Jesus became what he was going to die for. He, he became what he was going to advocate before God the Father for. So the how is through his death. The how is through his condescension. The how is for him going down into the hellish heart of the earth, referring to his death and burial. And becoming cursed for us. I mean, this is, uh, and actually what's kind of helpful here is to see the only other time that Luke uses the phrase bent over. So just remember in Acts 20 it says, Paul went down, he bent over the kid, Eutychus, and put him in his arms before he was made alive. The only other time Luke uses that in his two volumes in the Bible, that phrase, is in Luke 13 referring to a crippled woman. It's interesting who Jesus eventually heals. Let me just read this really quick. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by her spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, there's the phrase, and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your iniquity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up, and she praised God. All right, same author in both books, Luke and Acts. And I think here, a subtle allusion to how Jesus was not just a healer, but an allusion to the how behind this healing. That is, when he, when Jesus, became in himself bent over or crooked for us on the cross. And even though it might not seem like much in the Acts narrative, this is what was true about Paul. Paul was temporarily inconvenienced, interrupted for the sake of the boy, right? He stopped teaching mid-sentence. He left his place in the upper room and went down multiple flights of stairs, and he healed the kid. And with Jesus, it's similar, but a much higher inconvenience. It cost him his life to save us. It cost God his one and only son. That's how much he loves us. But with Jesus, he's not bothered by it. Like, we don't see Paul being bothered here. That's a whisper of how with Christ, Christ is not bothered by us. He's not bothered by the inconvenience, but willing to take it on in love for us. Willing to become bent over or crooked for the sake of bent over and crooked ones so that we might walk upright. We might be liberated. We might be free from our sins and walk in new life. This is the gospel sprinkled again with Acts 20 language. Christ came down and he was bent over for us on the cross and he took us in his arms. This is what he did. See, going back to the whole sandwich idea, what I was talking about before, how the bread in this narrative is teaching. Paul had an open Bible. He was quoting scripture. He was teaching about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. This kind of stuff right here. And the meat was kind of this afterthought of the resurrection. Remember that? And I asked you guys, well, where's all the people saying, we want more resurrections? We want to see more physical healing. What about my skin rash? The answer to why all that stuff is absent is because Jesus is better than miracles. He's better. This is better than the boy coming back to life. They didn't need any more of that stuff, the physical stuff. 
even though it happens and God is, God is good in that. He shows His power, His compassion in that. They didn't ask for it because they had Him. They had the bread of the sandwich. They had the better thing. The, the primacy of this is in play. The costliness of love. The costliness of God's love for us. Being moved and wrecked. Them knowing our sin and thinking, are you kidding you're saying God who made me loves me this much that he gave up his one and only son? And that's what I want to end with is love is, is this. It's always costly, right? All, those of you who have ever loved anyone, but especially those of you who are married, when you took vows, you basically said, I'm, I, I'm paying a cost. I'm, I'm choosing to not make my life about me anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm not an independent individual. That's fine, of course. Not moving from bad to good. It's just moving from one to the other. It's just saying, I'm laying something down. Alith and I would say that a lot about our marriage, that there's things we spent. It's totally worth it, but there are things we spent. There, there are ambitions we laid down. Um, there's costs we paid to show love to each other. Totally worth it. Still worth it every day. It's just love can't come without sacrifice and cost. It can't. And so, as humans, we experience, if you're not a Christian today, I'm sure you're sitting there acknowledging that. You have to acknowledge that. We all acknowledge that on an experiential level. What Christian theology says is, yes, but on a, on a related, higher level, Christian, Christianity then makes sense experientially. It makes sense of our worldview. It says, God showed love in a costly manner to us. He loved us so much that he gave up his one and only son. And so as we go forth today, uh, guys, here, here's like, um, I started with reference to a couple of things about our church. Here's another way of talking about what we're about um, to kind of make this a little bit more vision-centered. One, what we're about as a church is the value of gospel centrality. I talked about that, but here's another way to summarize what that's all about. Two things, belief and love. Belief this is from 1 John 3.23, but really everywhere in the Bible. But belief and love, that's what the New Testament, New Covenant is ultimately about. In other words, believing in him, believing in this event, trusting in this event to save us from our sins, not our works, but him. So with Acts 20 in mind, believing that Paul is imaging Jesus' gruesome condescension and death for us, that we might be saved from our sins and death, showing us the love of God, like Peter talked about before that last song, the love of God. That's the one thing, that, that's, the, that's the belief side. And calling each other, as Jesus does, to show that type of sacrificial love to other Christians. Broadly speaking, other people, for sure, but specifically other Christians in your church family. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the better thing. Believing, the lesser but still important thing, is showing that love sacrificially to other this is what This is what makes us Christians is we love the people of God. We love Christians who themselves are indwelt with the same spirit we were. We love other Christians because they're brothers and sisters. They're part of the same family. And when Jesus commands that in John 13, 34, this is why he does it. He wants the lesser thing to point to that. Just like Paul's resurrection points to that. Post-shadowing. 
This is what we have our opportunity to do this year. As we start another year of ministry and we live in this city that's far from God, like we were in some ways in our heart kind of are still. Some of you aren't Christians yet, and that's great. We're so glad you're here. But this is the opportunity we have as Christians to not just do one of these two things and not just vaguely talk about love. Don't be vague. The Bible's not vague when it comes to love. It's very, very specific. Love is sacrificial. Love is costly. And this is how we talk about love. Much more than love for each other, this is how we talk about it. And our love for people, though that's a huge secondary thing, this is, this is the opportunity we have to preach, share, value the teaching, and yet physically demonstrate compassion and love towards each other too for a world that's watching that and starving for that as well. So I'll pray that for us here to close. We'll, we'll close with uh, some songs here, but um, consider that. Believe in Jesus. Uh, Christians in the room, um, hear that. I need to hear this. Uh, this. This story gets at that idea of gospel centrality and that dual value of belief and love uh, very, very, very beautifully. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage. Thanks for the gospel today that is uh, as fresh and as new, as beautifully, gloriously repetitious as it has ever been in the Bible. Thank you for reminding us how it is so about you. It is about the dead becoming alive, the asleep waking up. It's about the passive nature of receiving salvation, rather earning it. It's about the kindness and love of God. It's the inconvenience and the cost that God had to endure and pay to get us back, which he did, which you did, and much more. So Father, forgive us our sins, make us new, uh, send us the Holy Spirit to blow afresh in our individual lives and our community as a church, and then send us, God, this week uh, into the world with the aroma of Christ and with a message that does really shake the foundations of the earth because of how much it has to do with you and radical love. And uh, so we pray this in your name. Amen.